You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. So glad to have you. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we've been leading through a study of the book of Judges that we're going to take a break on for one week. We had a couple of pretty heavy, uh, dark passages the past couple weeks. And so I'm going to take a uh, different uh, passage today and make actually a little bit of application at the end uh, about fathers and fatherhood. Um, and, uh, but we're going to look in Psalm 103 today. Now, after this week, starting next week, we'll go every week in Judges until it's done, and we'll end the first week of August. Uh, so that's where we're headed after today. But today we're going to look at Psalm 103, and I want to talk about uh, scandalous love, scandalous love. And I appreciate what Caleb said, that today is a different day for different folks, different experiences uh, for us. Um, but I want to bring a word of, I, I trust will be encouraging regardless of whether today is already a great joy, day of rejoicing for you or whether today is a, is a heavy day for you. Either way, uh, I think this passage is going to encourage you because we're going to look at a passage today that talks about the matchless love of God, the matchless love of God for us. And Psalm 103 begins um, it's a praise, a communal praise. It's to be used in corporate worship for prayer, uh, for praise rather. And it begins with an urging to don't forget not his benefits. Don't forget any of the Lord's benefits. And we're just going to sort of do a meditation today on four of the verses, uh, verses or five, I guess it'd be 10 through 14, verses 10 through 14. So he says, forget not any of his benefits. And then in the middle of the psalm, he mentions these benefits, does David, the author. So let's listen to these verses. This is God's holy word, Psalm 103, verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust." Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and I just pray in this moment where differing experiences and emotions run in our hearts this morning, I pray that you would capture all of our hearts with your word this morning, and that you would open up every heart that is hearing this passage of scripture, and that you would fill us with the love of God. Help us to see your love more deeply than we ever have, I pray, by your Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, really, the big idea of what we just read is it's pretty simple. It's that God's immeasurable love for us is higher and wider and deeper than any of us could imagine. And that's really what we're going to look at today, the height, the width, the depth of God's love for us as described in this passage. But before we jump into the passage, I want to tell you uh, about Prancer the Chihuahua. This is Prancer the Chihuahua going on a ride in the car with his owner. Here's another picture of Prancer standing at attention, this Chihuahua, and the final picture of Prancer looking so serious at each of us this morning. I don't know if you already know about Prancer, but this spring, a viral post, a post went viral on social media from the foster owner of Prancer. Her name is Tiffany Fortuna, and she put a post up uh, fostering Prancer and letting the world know that Prancer is available for adoption. Now, I've edited the post for length pretty significantly. She had a lot to say, but I'm going to read enough that you're going to get more than maybe you want but more than a feel for Prancer. This is what she says about Dear Prancer. Okay, I've tried. I've tried for the last several months to post this dog for adoption and make him sound palatable. The problem is he's just not. There's not a very big market for neurotic, man-hating, animal-hating, children-hating dogs that look like gremlins. But I have to believe there's someone out there for Prancer because I'm tired, and so is my family. Every day we live in the grips of the demonic chihuahua hellscape he has created in our home. If you own a chihuahua, you probably know what I'm talking about. He's literally the chihuahua meme that describes them as being 50% hate and 50% tremble. If you're intrigued and horrified at how this animal sounds already, just wait. There's more. There's more. His first week with us, he was too terrified to have a personality. And as awful as it sounds, I I kind of liked him better that way. He was quiet and just laid on the couch, didn't bother anyone. I was excited to see him come out of his shell and become a real dog. But I'm convinced at this point he's not a real dog but more like a vessel for a traumatized Victorian child that now haunts our home. (laughs) Prancer only likes women, nothing else. He hates men. He hates men more than women do, which says a lot. (laughs) If you have a husband, don't bother applying, unless you hate him. His hate also extends to other animals. Have other dogs, cats, don't apply. Unless they like being shaken up like a rag doll by a 13-pound rage machine. We also mentioned no kids for Prancer. I think at this point you can imagine why. He's never been in the presence of a child, but I can already imagine the demonic noises and shaking fury that would erupt from his body if he was. Prancer wants to be your only child. So what are his good traits? Well, he's loyal beyond belief, although to tell you a secret, his complex is really just a facade for his fear. If someone tried to kill you, I can guarantee he would run away screeching. (laughs) 
But as for companionship, you'll never be alone again. He likes to go for car rides. He is housebroken. He knows a few basic commands. He's quiet and non-destructive when left alone at home. Now, you can't live in an apartment or a condo unless you want him to ankle bite your neighbors. He, we already addressed the men and children situation. If you have people over, uh, you will have to put him away like he's a vacuum. I know finding someone who wants a Chucky doll in a dog's body is hard, but I have to try. Prancer is available through the Second Chance Pet Adoption League. If you've always wanted your own haunted Victorian child in the body of a small dog that hates men and children, please email me at, gives her address. Oh, and also, he's only two years old and will probably live to be 21 through pure spite. So take that into account if you're interested. I, um, I couldn't read a, didn't want to read a story about how we often judge other humans just pointing out their weaknesses and faults without recognizing very many of their strengths, how we deal with other humans we don't like. I didn't want to read something like that, so I read a story about a dog. It was in in jest, but she clearly isn't a fan of Prancer. Consider how we often deal with others that annoy and disturb us. I'm talking about humans now. Consider how we deal with others. Verse 10 says, he does not deal with us according to our sins. And yet, how do each of us deal with others? Because we will not appreciate the glory of God's love for us and how he deals with us, verse 10, until we think a bit about how we deal with others. This is what Sam Storms wrote in his commentary about Psalm 103. He says, consider for a moment how we deal with others. We keep fresh in our minds their injustices toward us. We nurture the memory of their faults and failings. We never let them forget what they did, and we often make sure others are mindful of it as well. We seek every opportunity, often secretly and surreptitiously, to make them pay for their transgressions. We hold it in our hearts and over their heads and persuade ourselves that it's only fair that they be treated this way. And yet verse 10 says, he does not deal with us. Or treat us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. One commentator said the point of this entire section of the psalm is to announce that Yahweh's way of working and his standard of judgment is not like anything that we expect. Especially in a world which says, I'll treat you the way you deserve to be treated or the way that you have treated me. Really, the love of God, as we read in this passage, it's not only different than our love, it's not only different than the world's love, it's actually scandalous, I believe we could say. It's a scandalous love. A scandalous, the word means that it is something that is offensive to propriety or morality. And I want to say that God's love is actually offensive to propriety, because his love is shocking, which is a synonym for scandalous. It is shocking the way he treats us in light of how we treat others 
and how we treat him. And in this passage, we get a picture of his love, the height of his love, the width of his love, and the depth of his love. These are the comparisons that David uses in talking about God's love. And he first of all talks about the height of God's love, where he says in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. So how high is that? How great is God's love? Well, his love is as great as it can be measured as far as the heavens are from the earth. How far is that? Well, we don't know. But at this point in human scientific discovery, we do know this, that the Hubble telescope has actually given us uh, breathtaking pictures of a galaxy that is 13 billion light years away. That's about as far, from what I understand, that's about as far as we've seen, at least with the Hubble telescope, 13 billion light years away, which is meaningless to us, right? How long is a light year? Well, a light year is 6 trillion miles. So this galaxy, so one light year is 6 trillion miles. This galaxy is 13 billion miles away. 13 billion times 6 trillion. That is how far we have been able to see. And that's not the edge of our universe by any stretch. So David writes this 3,000 years ago. He doesn't know about Hubble telescopes or probably doesn't know as much about astronomy as I assume an average sixth grader would today. Uh, He doesn't know about that, but here's what he does know. He does know that God's love is immeasurable. And so when he wants to talk about the measure of God's love, he doesn't pull out stats from the Hubble telescope. He rather resorts to poetry and gives a poetic expression saying that you cannot measure how great God's love is for us. You cannot measure it. Just know this, it's greater than you imagine. Just like when you think about the universe and what we've been able to see, Just know this, it's farther and it's greater than anyone has seen. That is the size of the universe and the love of God. When he refers to the love of God, he uses a very rich biblical term. He says, uh, verse 13, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love which is not just a love that's constant, though it is that. It's more than that. It's a technical term that he uses here. And I'm going to tell you the word because sometimes we use the word. You hear it sometimes, the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed, this is the word that's here. It's translated often in the, uh, in the Bible. It's often translated steadfast love. Older editions translated it loving kindness. Sometimes it's translated just love or sometimes mercy. But it's a word that has to do with God's covenant love. We, we read in the Bible that God made a covenant with his people. A covenant is a, a legally binding agreement uh, that, that has stipulations that if someone breaks the agreement, there are consequences to it. So God makes a covenant with his people. And yet, what we find throughout the Bible, especially if you've been around in Judges, we've seen this week after week, is that we as his people, we don't hold up our end of the covenant. But he holds up his end of the covenant, and that's what this is. It's covenant love. What does that mean? It means that God loves the unlovely. When we are acting unlovely, God loves us because he's made a covenant of love with his people. He's made a greater covenant with us in Jesus Christ, the new covenant. But God has made a covenant of love with his people. 
What does that mean? It means that God is faithful to the faithless. It means that God is loyal when we are disloyal. It means God has grace towards us when we deserve punishment. It means God is utterly selfless in his love when we are selfish in our response to him. It means that his love is entirely beyond our comprehension. We have, no, we have no adequate analogy for it. That's why David has to start talking about how far the heavens are from earth. We have no adequate analogy to grasp one who would love selflessly and constantly those who deserve judgment. We don't have that. We live in a world where we treat people like uh, Tiffany speaks of Prancer. That's often how we live. Aware of faults. Aware of weaknesses. And, and, and judging our response and our relationship accordingly. That's not the love of God. The love of God is profound, sacrificial constancy, uh, presence, care, uh, mercy to those who don't deserve it. That's his covenant love. And we can only grasp it at all if we get some kind of an illustration. And he gave us an illustration back in verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He does not deal with us. Now, the NIV translates it this way, and I I think this is a very sort of graspable phrase. It's, It's a sticky translation to understand. He says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what he's saying. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. So to understand the love of God, you start with, he does not treat me as my sins deserve. The first question is, what do my sins deserve? Because if he's not treating me the way I deserve to be treated, how do I deserve to be treated? Well, if you just think about the story of the Bible, we get a window into that. That God creates a perfect world. He creates the first couple, Adam and Eve, in a perfect world world with perfect fellowship provides everything for them but they rebel against him they choose to go their own way in other words god is writing a story for the for his people for his universe which he spoke into existence uh, god is in essence sort of writing a story and they say you know hold off uh, we're going to write our own story we're going to step out of this story and we're going to write our own uh, we don't want you to rule over us. We want to be like God. That's in essence what they said. We want to be like God. And since that time, everything has been broken. The, the world, I mean, we're created in God's image, so there's still pictures of God's image around in all humans. Uh, we can certainly see good things uh, as we look at the creation. We can see the handiwork of God. So I'm not communicating that everything is as bad as it could be, but, but everything fell at their rebellion and since that time that's the way we've lived we've endorsed what they chose and that is we want to run the show Uh, we often talk about it as being in control being a controlling person that desire that is the essence of sin that we don't think of it that way that's the essence of sin I want to form my own identity, write my own rules, make my own judgments about what is right and wrong. I want to control the narrative of my life. I want to live my truth, we would say today. That is the essence of sin. Sin is not just breaking rules. We think of it as, okay, it's just breaking. The rule said that. The sign said 70 miles per hour. I went 72. I broke a rule. 
It's not just breaking rules. That's, that's the evidence of sin. The heart of sin is I don't want the loving God of the universe to call the shots. I want to do that. I don't want to submit to his good, kind, gracious rule, which is best for me and everybody else. I would rather do what I want to do. That's why Romans 3 says, there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. By nature, no one gets this, what I'm saying, that God has a plan for uh, created human beings. We don't get that. We do, it just seems so right to do what we want to do, to make our own value judgments, determine our own meaning in life, to script our own purpose. When God has provided all of that for us, identity, purpose, and meaning. So we've separated ourselves from God. We've been defiant against him. And the scripture says, because of that, we should be judged. Measured against God's standard, which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Measured against God's standard, we're all what the Bible would call sinners. We do break his rules, but we break his rules because we're broken at a root level. So where is the immeasurable love? Well, the immeasurable love is he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. You know why? Because he treated someone else as our sins deserve. That's the love of God. He does not treat us according to our sins. He treats someone else according to our sins, his own son. We were the ones that rebelled. We are the ones that have resisted his rule and authority. But God himself becomes man, the God-man Jesus Christ, who, who fully obeys his father, loves God, loves his neighbor perfectly, and yet dies on a cross in our place. And when Jesus dies for our sins, he is judged for our sins. He is judged in our place. In other words, he substitutes himself and he is treated as our sins deserve. What the Bible calls iniquities or transgressions or sins, they are put on Jesus. For those of us who believe in Christ, our sins are put upon him. This is what Isaiah 53 says in the Old Testament about this kind, what Jesus did, this kind of love. It says, he was pierced for our transgressions, that sin. He was crushed, talking about the cross. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is so beautiful, because what it's saying, we all went our own way, away from the way of God, and God took the judgment for our waywardness and took it himself. This is indescribable, shocking, scandalous love. And that's the love of God for us. Why does he do that? Why did God do that? Why did God not treat us as our sins deserve, but treat Christ as our sins deserve? Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. It's because God is loving. It's not fundamentally because I'm deserving. It's because God is loving, gracious, merciful, kind. His love is, is it, David has to go poetic. It, is, it cannot be quantified or measured. It is an incomprehensible love, but we get a glimpse of it. We get enough of it to know the love of God when we see what Christ did for us on the cross. 
Do you live with that awareness? Do you live with an awareness, uh, believer in Christ? Do you live with the awareness that God's love for me today is indescribable? Or do you feel like God is probably slightly annoyed with you, putting up with you, enduring you? I mean, he is long-suffering after all. Uh, Enduring you today. Do you think God's primarily, if you're a Christian today, you're in Christ, do you think God's stance is primarily one of disappointment? That you are a big letdown. You have let the Father down this year. Are you primarily aware that, yes, I have failed, it is true, but I am created in the image of God. That image is broken because of my sin, and God has redeemed me in Christ and loves me. He treated Christ with what I deserve, and he loves me in an indescribable way. I am primarily aware of his love for me today. That's what the Lord wants for all of us. The height of his love, higher than you can grasp. The width of his love, the next two will be briefer. The width of his love, the second comparison is similar. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. The journalist and poet Rudyard Kipling wrote about this, wrote, not about this verse, but about this, this phrase, and he said the following, O east is east and west is west and never the twain shall meet. Okay, Kipling gathers what David is talking about. East and west, you know, uh, I'm disoriented here. Uh, West and east, I guess. So east and west, if you just keep going east, and if you just keep going west forever and ever and ever, not around the globe, but just in that direction, Kipling says they will never meet. And David says that's how far our sins are removed from us. That, they're removed. You, You can't measure the distance that your sins have been removed from you. It's eternal. God took, Jesus took your sins and it's, they are eternally separated from you. That is how much God loves us. He did for us what we, not only what we couldn't do for ourselves, but what we didn't want for ourselves. He did that for us because he loves us. And this is the repeated testimony of scripture. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Doesn't mean that God cognitively couldn't pull up a remembrance of your sins. God knows everything. It's impossible for God not to know something. So when he says, I will not remember your sins, it does not mean that God is somehow cognitively impaired in his memory, just can't pull that one. Oh man, I'm trying to figure out what did that guy do last spring? No, it's not, that's not what he means. It means it's just, it's not affecting the way he relates to you in Christ. Jeremiah 31, 34. This is speaking of when a new covenant will come in Jesus. And and, and God says, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Or Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus no condemnation. If you are in Christ Jesus, you cannot be condemned for your sins. Why? Because he treated you, your sin, treated someone else as your sins deserve. He has separated your sins 
from you. And if you are here as a believer in Christ or listening as a believer in Christ, here's what you need to know. He removes our sins, but under the new covenant, he does something even more amazing is he counts us as righteous. He doesn't give you just a blank slate and erase all your sins. He says, if you believe in Jesus, then all of Jesus's righteousness, I'm counting that to you. So God doesn't view you, if you are a believer in Jesus today, God does not view you as just totally forgiven and wiped clean. He doesn't look down and say, oh, there's a blank slate. He looks down and on you and he sees perfection in Christ. That's how he relates to you. Are you perfect? No. But what I'm saying is he relates to you. That is your position. That is your status. He relates to you as he relates to his own son. That means he put your sin on his son, but it also means that he gives his son's righteousness to you. That's how far your sins are removed. You're declared righteous today. And finally, the depth of his love. The third comparison speaks of the depth of his love. This is what he says. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame that we are dust. This is very personal. He's saying, as a father shows compassion, so God shows compassion. The word compassion it's what you think it is. It's a word of emotion. It's a word of feeling. It's a word of care and a word of tenderness. God's love is not only lofty, like things that stretch our mind. High as the heavens are from the earth, as far as east goes to west. Wait a minute, what's that? What? Not only mind-blowing truths like that, but it, his love is also this. He is very near. He is a tender-hearted father and cares loves individually personally with compassion do you think of God that way let's go back a couple of verses I love this out of verse 8 it says the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in love steadfast love. I wonder how many of us would change that in our own experience. And we live with a different version. The Lord is exact, judgmental, harsh. He is quick to anger, finding every fault and abounding in critique and condemnation. Some of us live that way slow to anger, compassionate. Now, he's speaking about an ideal father. Caleb, in his exhortation to us this morning, which was really beautiful, recognized that in a broken world, clearly not all fathers are compassionate. But we're talking about here the ideal father. If you could think about the ideal father who is compassionate and understanding his children. And, and David says, God relates to us that way only perfectly. N only perfectly. His fatherly compassion is rooted in the knowledge of our frailty. Okay? Why is he compassionate? Well, verse 14, for he knows our frame and he remembers we are dust. God knows how we're formed, in other words. He knows about us. He knows that we are needy like children. He realizes that we are weak like a young child. He realizes that we are ignorant 
like a young child. He realizes that we go off and lose focus and do our own thing, forgetting about him like a young child. We're, we're like a little kid running around. Uh, my kids did this. Uh, I, my grandkids as well. You're kind of running around with a cape on, pretending that we are a superhero when that's all an illusion. Really, we have very limited knowledge, very limited power, very limited self-sufficiency. We can't even provide our next heartbeat. This is how dependent we are. We think we are masters of our faith. We think we, we've accomplished so much. Look, you can't even ensure your life to the end of this meeting. You can't make your heart keep beating. We're absolutely dependent for every breath that we take. God knows this. God knows that we need him and that we are limited. And that's why he has compassion as a perfect father, as, as the one being in all the universe who can do whatever he wants, for, who has all knowledge, all ability. He knows that we are not like that. And so he shows compassion to us. Do you think about that? Do you live as a Christian with this awareness? God shows compassion to me because I'm like a child. I am his child. He shows compassion to me because he knows what I'm made of. He knows my frame. He knows my origin. He knows my limitations. I may act one way in front of others, but he knows what I'm like personally, privately, in secret. He remembers that we are dust compared to him. He realizes that. In reading over this psalm and studying it, I read a, a really statement that I've been thinking about all week. I'm going to share it with you. It's from Sam Storms again. This is what he said. One of the greatest obstacles to experiencing intimacy with God is our knowledge of God's knowledge of us. And then in his book, he said, read that again. So, okay. One of the greatest obstacles to experiencing intimacy with God, what blocks our intimacy with God? We often don't know, uh, we often don't have knowledge of God's knowledge of us. What's he saying? He's saying this, many of us aren't close to God because we don't know how God really thinks about us. Because if you knew that God is a God of compassion, that God knows what we are made of, that God is patient, loving, kind, that he is slow to anger, if you knew that, you would not run from God, you would run to God. We are lim if we don't think, what does God think about me in Christ? What does the scripture tell me? Not what do I feel, what does the scripture tell me? If we don't get that, we will never be close to God. You have to know that God is a compassionate father who shows compassion to those who fear him, that he knows your frame, meaning all of your limitations. He understands your ignorance. Like a good father, when a toddler asks a question because he or she doesn't understand something, you don't yell at them or scold them for not knowing. You say, this is a toddler, and this is how a toddler learns is by asking. God is like that kind of a father. Not the father quick to swoop down when you don't know something. Uh, toddlers are young and inexperienced, and so are you, and so am I. God God patiently teaches us again and again and again. Like a good father, he understands that we're slow to grow. I don't remember what my, I don't know what my parents thought about my childhood, but I've a father and a grandfather and been around a lot of kids over the years. And my observation is just like with me growing up, kids don't change very rapidly. I mean, give them 18, 20, 22 years, 
and they'll start figuring some things out, right? <laughs> some of you have kids in your 20s and say, can you raise that number a little bit? No, I'm teasing. We've got wonderful teenagers and 20-somethings in this church. But the reality is, yeah, it takes quite a while to get the basics down of doing this thing called life. As a parent, a, go a godly parent uh, that is compassionate realizes that uh, you know, we don't put people on an unrealistic timetable. God doesn't do that. He knows that we are dust. He knows how we are framed. He knows how we are made of. So he demonstrates patient instruction, care, loving discipline, forgiveness. God knows we are slow. That's why he does say that he is long-suffering and patient and slow to anger. So what's the message if you're a dad today from all this? Imitate God. Should we all get a new product, a WWFD bracelet? What would the father do? We did the Jesus, now we'll do father. What would father do? And just I'm just going to be a godly father and do whatever the Lord would do. Well, it's true, we are called to imitate God. That's a biblical idea. But that's not the first thing. That's not the foundational thing. That's not what this passage is about. This passage isn't about loving like God, it's about being loved by God. And that's the starting place. That's the, it's not only the starting place, you never leave that. You never leave that. The call to dads and to all of us is to stop and to pause at least today in this passage and in this season and rest in these truths. That God's love for you personally, not for the person next to you, not for your spouse, not for one of the pastors, not for someone who's more godly than you. No, God's love for you is higher than the heavens are for the, the earth. It's immeasurable. God's taken your sins. He's removed them from you as far as the east is from the west. You can't get farther away from your sins in terms of how God relates to you, in terms of the basis of your relationship. I didn't say you never sin. I'm saying the foundation, how does God foundationally relate to you? What's your status before God? Righteous, as far east is from the west. God relates to you with a deep compassion. Why? Because God knows your frailty. God made you. He knows you better than yourself. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your sins. He knows your tendencies. You have no secret sins before God. You have no secret weaknesses before God. He knows them all and he loves you. He's not treating you as your sins deserve because that's why Jesus came. That's why God, that's what Christmas was about, God becoming man. That's what Good Friday is about, the God-man taking our sins. That's what Easter is about, the God-man being raised from the dead to show power and victory over sin, death, and our enemy, the devil. There is no greater love than the love God has for us in Christ. And here's the reality. You cannot share God's love unless you're experiencing God's love. You can't pass on what you don't know. You can't embrace and treat others with the love of God if you're not living in that yourself. So may today be a day where the, enter, the inner, not enter, the inner judge, the inner critic, the inner accuser. Do you, do you know what the word Satan means, it means accuser. We need to silence the inner accuser 
that says God is mad at you, God is distant from you, God doesn't like you, you're not like everybody else. God, this sermon's for somebody else in the room and not for you. We got some other verses to talk about you. God wants us to silence that and rest in this truth, marinate in this truth, sit in this truth, whatever metaphor works for you. Embrace this truth that God's love for us is immeasurable in Christ. And the demonstration of that is what he did for us on the cross. We're called to love, to be sure, but that is always an overflow of being loved. You ever heard that statement? And there's probably a fair bit of truth to it. Hurt people hurt people. I think we could say loved people love people if the love is the love of God. People loved by God love with the love of God. People who know the grace of Christ treat others graciously. People who've experienced the mercy of God are merciful with others. That's for dads, that's for all of us. And if you've never experienced this kind of love, you don't know Christ, you think Christianity is just some kind of religion where the goal is to master the practices with your own self-discipline and then maybe God will accept you, that's not Christianity. Christianity is what I've been talking about for the last 35 minutes or however long it's been. Christianity is about God's love for us in Christ, God rescuing us from our own sins and rebellion. And showing us that it's true, our sins are worse than any of us I know, but his love is greater than any of us could ever dream or imagine because of Christ. And we're going to take time this morning and receive the love of God afresh in communion. Because communion reminds us in the bread and the cup that love, God's love is not an emotion or a feeling or a thought. It's a bloody cross with God sacrificing himself for us. And it's a reminder, I am loved because God is a loving God. So we're going to invite the band up. We're going to sing. If you, uh, let's stand together. <coughs> if you um, didn't get, we have these individualized communions uh, cups. If you didn't get this, you can get one on the back table in the back. You can go right now. That's fine. Please go ahead. If you have believed in Jesus as your Savior, we encourage you to take this and receive communion with us today. Um, if, if you have not, uh, we would ask you just to, you know, listen and sing with us. Um, this is a communion with Christ. So what we're saying when we receive this is, I believe in him. And it just wouldn't be meaningful for you if you, if you don't believe. But uh, we'd love to talk to you afterwards and help explain more about how you can know him. Uh, it would be great. It would be a great Father's Day, whether you're a father or not, to meet the Father who's given his son for you to give you eternal life. It would be great to meet him today. That'd be a Father's Day for eternity. So we'll be at around afterwards. Please come talk to us if we can answer any questions. But we're going to sing together, and then we'll receive this in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.